divorces, broken engagements, long-term relationships that end. Why does it seem like now more than ever, relationships are ending sooner than they've started? Seeing on my social media, on Facebook, or hearing from friends about divorces that are going on, about broken engagements that are happening, it saddens me to see this. And I keep asking myself, why is this becoming a trend now? Why is it so common to hear about broken engagements and divorces now more than ever? I'm on a mission to change the world with everything I do and all my motivational posts that I am also on this mission. I want to help these relationships that are ending. Why is this becoming a thing? They sadden me so much. So this conversation and this episode is actually based off of a few things. One, about this determination to help save people's relationships. And also based off of a conversation I had with one of my friends who had bumped into someone that she knew. My friend is married and this person was asking her, tell me the secrets to marriage. How do I find my person? Is there a checklist that I need to look for? I don't even know what to look for. So for all those combinations and more, I was inspired to create this episode to help the world with dating and marriage and relationships and how to get married only once. Well, since I'm no relationship or marriage expert, I thought I should bring on the queen of marriages, the one, the only, Hannah Levitan, who has the book, I Only Want to Get Married Once. So we have an amazing conversation where we talk about a lot of different things from what does it mean to be infatuated with someone versus being in love, how to look for values in a relationship instead of common interests and goals because we get those mixed up, what you should look for in a checklist for who you're dating about needs versus wants, what to settle for in faults in another person, about how social media has affected relationships, and so much more. This is an amazing episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear all of it. And let me just do a little backtrack. If this is your first time listening to Behind the Rainbow, hello and welcome. My name is Elaine Chaya. Please make sure to follow me on Instagram at Elaine Chaya, E-L-A-I-N-E-C-H-A-Y-A. And I say Instagram because that's the place that you can directly contact me and we can chit chat about all these episodes and more and you can see all the fun Instagram posts I do. Also, make sure you share this episode with everyone. I truly do want to save a lot of relationships. I know that's what Han is all about. That's why she has a whole book about it. So I want this episode to really inspire and help people to know what to look for when they're dating and trying to get married. They do not want to hear about any more broken engagements and divorces. I want everyone to be happily married. So let's make this happen, you guys. Please make sure to subscribe to my channel, write me some ratings and reviews. And also, again, if this is your first time, please go back and binge listen to all my other episodes. They're like these cute little niblets that you can listen to on the car ride to and from work. You'll be able to probably listen to like five. All right. So again, this is my episode with Hana. Whether you're single, you're married, divorced in a relationship, this is going to be such a powerful episode because as Hana teaches us, love is always a muscle that we're working on. I'm putting her information in the show notes that you can connect with her and buy her books and know all about Hana. Hana, thank you so much for doing this episode again. I listened to it a few times already and I'm re-inspired and ready to find love on the first try. Enjoy. Ah, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. For the past like two weeks since you've emailed me, I've been telling everyone, I'm like, yeah, you guys know Hana Levitan. She's going to be on my podcast. Be jealous. Everyone's so excited for this episode. (laughs) All right, great. So I do a quick little intro about why I have chosen the guests that I do for each episode. So I wanted to start off with that before we get into my questions. So I have known about you for a few years now. I've been to one of your lectures when you were in LA and it was really amazing. It was at someone's house. I can't even remember where. My sister, Sharona, who I mentioned in a lot of my episodes, is your number one fan. She's read your book, I Only Want to Get Married Once, and then I read it as well. But she always recommends the best things to me. So when I told her that I I was going to have you on an episode, she's like freaking out even more than everyone else. And she's like, I need to submit some questions. So some of these questions are from her. Okay. So basically, the reason why I wanted to do this with you is because more than ever, I feel like I've been seeing just a lot of divorces being announced, a lot of broken engagements. And I'm like, I want to make a difference and help change this. And since I don't 
don't know how to make a difference because I'm not a guru in this stuff. I'm like, I have to bring the guru of marriage on to my podcast. So that's why I have you. Thank you. So quickly, for those who don't know you, which if they don't know you, who are they? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the marriage field and how you started speaking and writing books. Okay. So we'll, we'll take a long story and try to, to make it shorter. I started out as an educator teaching many, many different subjects. And whenever I taught on the subject of relationships, the room filled up. In my own process, I had a lot of learning about love and infatuation and weeding through all of the wrong guys to get to the right one. So I had had a lot of my own experience and apparently it was really speaking to a lot of people. And the room filled up, lots of questions, created more research for me, doing masters in family therapy. And that led to writing a book and another book. Some people find their passion. For some people, their passion finds them. And I would say for me, it was a combination. In your book, I Only Want to Get Married Once, which was the best, you mentioned in one of, I think, the first chapters about infatuation. So why is that something you start off right from the beginning to talk about? What's the importance of it? How is that different than love? Just for people who haven't read your book to give a little breakdown of that. Yeah, I mean, this is the main thing that trips people up. And again, it's the main thing that almost tripped me up when I was dating. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, researching. It's so funny. You know, I, I thought when I put my book out 10 years ago, it would become old. And I'm just shocked by the fact that the whole love, infatuation, enigma, confusion has only gotten worse. There's a misconception. There's this myth that the feeling in our stomach, that the excitement that we feel when we see someone is love. We could even say there's a myth that the chemistry is love and it's not. It might be connected to love and it might be not connected to love at all. It is extremely confusing. And even though intellectually we know that there's a difference between love and infatuation, the more movies we watch, we just naturally buy into what we're being told on the camera, which is that is love. And that whole thing happened in two and a half hours or two hours or one and a half hours. And that was a real love story. And it's not. It's not real people and it's not a real relationship. It's not a real love story. So we desperately want to believe that love could be that easy. And it's not that easy. And if it was, it would be boring. It wouldn't be worth it. We have to work for it. What would be the difference or definition between infatuation and love? Because I mean, I'm one of those people, I meet a guy and I'm like, oh my God, we talked for five hours. Yeah. He's my husband. Mm -hmm. I'll always say that to my friends. So how do you know that that's not it? But sometimes for people it is. They find the person. Look, again, infatuation is a temporary experience. It's a concoction of different chemicals in our system of phenylethylamine and norepinephrine and dopamine. And there's all these chemicals going on. And this is research. I mean, we know that this experience cannot last more than two years, maybe three years max, just in terms of the chemical reactions. So we have to, if we're looking for a long-term love, we're looking for a basis from which once the infatuation starts to fade, that chemistry, that there can be a long-lasting connection. So that long-lasting connection, this is where people get tripped up, doesn't just happen. That long-lasting connection is something that we build. And the infatuation, therefore, can serve as a wonderful kickstart to a lasting love. But that concoction of chemicals in and of itself is not love. And we can feel it with the most toxic, awful person for us on the planet. I'm sure we've all felt incredibly attracted, incredibly in love with someone who was just the biggest idiot. Or again, for us, they would be an idiot. Yeah? Yeah, I'm having a lot of flashbacks. Yes. And then, so like when I'll meet someone, I'm like, but we love the same stuff. We have 
the same interests and goals. And you have a whole chapter with a beautiful diagram about values, interests, and goals. And you talk about how values is the number one thing. Can you explain that a little more and why you think that's the most important? Well, you know, when the infatuation starts to fade, that is when values take center stage. What we stand for, what we believe in. When people don't connect on a values level, then they're missing the most sturdy connector in a relationship. Because once we share values, we share goals. Our goals tend to come from our values. Those are the things that are really, really solid. Our interests and how we like to spend time, you know, those things come and go and they change. We oftentimes think, that, oh, since we have so many common interests, we like the same movies and we like the same music and we both love to run and, you know, we both love the color purple. So this is just really a match made in heaven. And all too often people make a commitment because of the shared interests, but those interests fade with time. And if values are not matching up, the relationship is not going to work because those values are really who we are in our essence. And when our essence is not matching up, it's a disaster. And for people who don't know what to look for in values, if they're not sure what that is, how can they go about knowing what their values are and to look for the right person? Before we know whether someone is for us, we have to know who we are and what we stand for. That's what I call dating ourselves. So we need to take the time out and figure out what are my values? What do I stand for? What am I truly, truly living for? That could take some time. There are books. I certainly have a few pages in my book devoted to that, but there are life coaches we really need to figure out who we are because if we don't know what we stand for, then how can we know whether someone's going to be good for us? And I meet a lot of people who say, well, I'll just know. I'll, I'll just know. It doesn't work like that for 99%. Sometimes people get lucky and they just knew and they actually did get it right. But for most, 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 most people, if we haven't worked out who we are, then we're not going to be able to choose the person who's best for us. And I'll also add, the better we know who we are and what we need in terms of a match with our values, the quicker we're going to be able to see whether someone is for us. And we don't want to waste years and years and years investing in someone who's not for us. To add to that, a lot of people say to have a checklist, write down like the top seven things that you're looking for in a partner. So how would you suggest people to write a checklist of the things that they actually need versus things that they would want? Because I think people sometimes get tripped up about that and maybe are looking for the wrong things on their checklist, which aren't necessarily what they need. Yes, yes, yes. Big question. Beautiful question questions. Once we have a sense of our values, and I really suggest to come up with our top three values or top five values in terms of this is what we live for. That's one list. Then there's another list, which is personality. What are the things I need in personality? Now, there will be some overlap between these two lists, but when we look at our list in terms of, okay, this is what I need in his personality or her personality. Once we come up with a list, let's say we come up with a list of 10 things. What we need to do then is to look at this list and say, okay, what on this list do I need, but not as much as everything else? And then what on this list do I need, but not as much as everything else? That is how we chop it down to, we want to get to our top three in personality. So that's how you get to your needs versus wants. You don't get to your needs versus wants by saying, what do I need versus wants? We have a hard time with that one. We just look at the list of the whole thing and say, what do I need, but not as much as everything else? And then the top three things are our absolute needs in personality. A question that I have for you is that a lot of people that I've talked to who have gone 
gotten divorces or broken engagements, I'll ask them out of my own curiosity, like the things that ended your relationship, is this something that just happened recently that you found out? Or is it things over time? They're like, no, it's things that we knew about from the beginning, but we were hoping that it would change over time. And you talk about faults in your book and that no one's perfect. Everyone has faults. But how do you break it down between things that are actually going to be that deal breaker in the long run or faults that are worth working through? How do people know if they should stick around with something and try to get through it? You know, when people go into a marriage and they know there's something that's a problem and they say, we'll work it out. That is a problem, starting a relationship off like that. That's why one of the things I say in my book is we have to ask ourselves, if this never changes or that never changes in this person, would we still want to be married to them? We can't go into a relationship saying, yeah, this is an issue, but it'll get better with time, unless it's a small issue. But if people are going into a marriage and they're like, well, this is really a big thing, but it's okay. We figured it'll work out. I would never suggest to go into a marriage like that. If it's an issue, so then get some premarital therapy. If it's not a big issue, let's say for some person, you know, the fact that their partner smokes is a big deal. So if that's a big deal, then that person has to stop before getting hitched and not for the other person, but for themselves. Now, if it's not such a big deal, the person would prefer them not smoking, but it's not such a big deal, then getting married, okay, we're going in knowing that, okay, this is something I'm not crazy about, but I decided it was not a deal breaker and I'm going to learn how to deal with it if they stop, if they don't stop. There's a level of maturity in terms of understanding that no one's perfect and we're not going to find someone who is perfect. But we have to share enough, again, values that we have a strong foundation. And then the issues, so to speak, the faults that the person has, whatever we're able to see, these need to be things that we've thought out. And if we can't really handle them, we work on them beforehand. If we go into the marriage saying, okay, you know what? I really thought about it. I'm going to make this work no matter what. And we'll get help to work on this issue. Fine. When people get divorced, there are times to get divorced. What are the reasons? Yes, to get divorced. If there's abuse, if there are unchecked addictions, they have an addiction and they're not taking responsibility for their addiction. If there's mental illness and a person's not going to help themselves, you know, someone's bipolar and they won't take their medication. There are times to get divorced because that can't work. But besides those times, most issues can be resolved. This is something that, you know, because there's this myth that compatibility means we're the same, we think the same, we feel the same, right? we have the same opinions on everything. So there's this myth that really messes people up and they get married and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, we don't agree on everything. And, you know, that person's got some issues that I wasn't even aware of. And wait, you know, how could this be? Well, it can be because we are going to be very different no matter how similar we are we're going to have certain differences. And number two, we have issues that we didn't know about in the other person. And we have issues in ourselves that we didn't even know about. Because when we get married, all of our issues sort of rise to surface. Because marriage is an incredible opportunity for growth. And if people don't enter into marriage with that growth perspective, then they're like, wait a minute, what happened over here? What's all these faults? We're human beings. We're going to come in with faults. And you know, self-esteem is all about holding ourselves in warm, positive regard, in spite of our flaws, we're able to hold ourselves in warm, positive regard together with our flaws, with our faults. That's self-love. When we can do that and we can love ourselves with our flaws, we can love another person with their flaws. If we want a strong marriage, it really comes back to a commitment to accepting and loving ourselves, accepting and loving the other person, and being ready to work through you know, the stuff that comes up because 
that's all actually good. That's how we get to true love. We plow through the things that are in the way that then turn into the secrets for greatness in the relationship. And why do you think that there are more and more divorces that are happening and broken engagements? Do you think people are just not willing to put in that work to get through those efforts and they just result in thinking that's just easier to end it? Great question. I think both. I think, first of all, that because there's a myth, because we grow up watching movies and it just goes into our psyche that they were so easy. Why doesn't my marriage look like the notebook? I mean, it's so easy. That's one reason. One reason is because we have this myth that love is supposed to look a certain way. And when our marriage doesn't look like that, we think there's something wrong with it. That's number one. And number two, we are not aware of the muscles that we need in order to create lasting love because you see love is a muscle it's a verb and just like we go to the gym and we work out and we start you know lifting half a pound one pound three pounds five pounds you can't just do it all at once but the more we lift the easier it gets and then, you know a year later two years later we're like <laughs> that was like two years ago I couldn't lift anything and it's the same thing in marriage the more we stretch the love muscle the more we actually are able to experience the beauty and the joy and the power of coming together with another human being who's different from who we are. And that's the point. Children think, oh, we both love the color red. Yay, we're best friends. This is amazing. That's children. Adults, it's, wow, we're so different. I'm going to learn how to love you with our differences. I can't change you into me. I'm going to try to change you. It's not going to work. So I need to learn how to love you. You are so different from me. You think differently. You act differently. And I'm going to learn how to love you you with all those differences. That's love. That's mature human love. And that is so powerful and so beautiful. But whew, you got to work for it. Got to grow up. <laughs> and I don't know how much you're involved on social media, but what I've been able to see since I'm so involved is that couples are posting all these photos of themselves sometimes saying, love you, this and that. And it's a lot. And then you find out they get a divorce. Yeah. And so what do you think the effect of social media is on relationship? And why do you think people post so much, especially for those people who end up getting divorced? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, social media is wonderful and amazing in so many ways. And it's here to stay. It's given us so many opportunities to connect and express ourselves. And it's like anything else. It has very dangerous side, obviously very external and keeping up with the Joneses and all the likes and the thumbs up and the external self-definition. Love is a very internal thing. Self-esteem is a very internal thing. So like, you know, we're out there doing the external game and we need to play the external game. You know, we can't like hide away in some like weird place. We need to be out there, but we have to remember that that's not really, really, really all of who we are. It's just an expression of who we are. So that's where we need to take the time out to develop ourselves. We need to take the time out to develop our relationship. These people are posting their pictures and they're so cute. We know that, you know, it's, it's oftentimes the couples who have the most PDA that are the ones who get divorced because love is an internal thing. We might want to show it off on the outside, but if it's not something that exists and that we're building on the inside, we're hurting ourselves, we're harming ourselves. Life has become become this treadmill. You know, we're running and we're trying to keep up and we're trying to do this. And you know something? We can step off the treadmill, work on ourselves, take inventory, do some inner healing because we've all come through stuff. We've all been burned. We've all been betrayed. We've all been through stuff and it's okay. We're human. We need to heal. We got to breathe. Oftentimes social media is like this constant treadmill. It creates a lot of anxiety. You get onto that anxiety train and there's a lot of inner shame and inner self-hatred. And that's a lot of times also we're 
relationships fall apart because again, we can't love someone if we're not loving ourselves. And if we don't have enough time to be with ourselves, then we can't love ourselves. And then we're in a negative place. And then all that negativity spills out on our partner. That's what's happening. So all of the incredible innovations that exist in our lives that are meant to help us save time have created a situation where we're like mice running around in this maze. Each one of us has to make personal decision to step out of the maze and to take some time to reconnect, to meditate, to pray, to work out, to calm down and come back into ourselves. Because love is only possible if we're connected to ourselves. You talk about in your book about consulting others when you're dating, but then I've had suggestions from other people that don't consult others because everyone has their own opinion about things and not everyone's opinion is right. You might know better than others about what is right for you. So what's the good line to draw between consulting others for opinions when you're dating and trusting your own instincts? Well, I think that depends who others are consulting others. If it's our parents, but they don't really get us or don't get dating, then we shouldn't consult them. If it's our single friend, friends who are going through their own struggles. So that's not a great idea. I think everyone needs to have some sort of a dating mentor, a role model, someone who's already married, who's really making it happen in their own lives. Someone they trust could be a mentor and could be an older friend, an older sibling even. But we are way too subjective to see things objectively when it comes to love, when it comes to dating. So we do need the help of someone outside of ourselves. At the same time, someone outside of ourselves is not seeing everything we're seeing. So it's the combination. If we know that we've been dating for many, many, many years and we have some commitment stuff, then other people's opinions are more important, not than ours necessarily, but they're very important because we're tripping ourselves up because we have some fears. And when I say other people's opinions, I mean the chosen people who we trust have our best interest in mind and have a sense of what marriage is. I met this guy once who told me he had a horrible marriage. And I said, you know what happened? He says, you know, I should to listen. There's only one person on this planet I love and I trust, and that's my aunt. And she told me, don't do it. And I didn't listen. We might not have a whole bunch of people and we definitely don't want to walk around taking a poll, right? So we have to tune into ourselves. But, you know, Elaine, the most developed, savvy people I know, when they get to dating, they get fooled. Everyone, we all get fooled. So it's very important to have someone to help us to see things clearly. People must think you're a marriage guru, that you probably don't have problems in your own marriage. But I'm sure, because we're all human, there are times that you might have a difficulty that you're trying to get through. How do you do that for yourself when you're faced with a problem in your own marriage? Well, I could never help anyone ever if I didn't work on my own marriage. That's the basis for any marriage therapist and it's a basis for any therapist. We can only help someone to the degree to which we have helped ourselves. The strength of the work that I do, I very much derive from my own marriage of over 31 years now. I would say the greatest difficulty that my husband and I face is very much coming to terms with our differences and not trying to change each other. I used to say, you know, there's no couple on this planet that are more different than my husband and I. I used to say that. What happened was I kept hearing more and more people say that same phrase, no one more than us. And, and I was like, wow, everyone is so sure that there's no couple on the planet that's more different than their spouse, which was so fascinating to me that it really launched me into some research. I said, I have to get to the bottom of this. What's with all these differences and why are we drawn to someone who's so different? And I think about my husband and 
I'm, I'm a creative, spontaneous type, and he's very grounded, mathematical, and I'm like out there giving and interacting socially, and he's very much more like internal. So many, so many differences. So my research showed me that there are 10 common differences the couples have, and I researched people throughout the world in eight different countries, surveyed 400 married people in the States. It was very fascinating, the research and meeting so many people, and I came up with 10 common differences couples have. Some have two or three, many have nine or 10. And nonetheless, with all these differences, many, many of the couples are extremely happily married. So what really came to light from the research and from really my own marriage is that it's those differences that make the marriage so exciting and interesting and very, very challenging if we don't know how to use them, how to approach them. So that's why I wrote the book because I said, I don't want people to go through what I went through. But no one ever really spelled it out to me. And my parents, I give them a lot of credit. They were really, really trying to work on their marriage. And they were both on second marriages and they were struggling. And there wasn't the whole concept of family therapy or marriage therapy wasn't really so developed then. I give them a lot of credit for trying, but it was not pretty to watch them with their marriage. And I said to myself, I'm going to make it work no matter what. I'm really going to make it work. And it would have helped me so much if I knew the truth about these differences, these personality differences. Because again, as I read in my first book, I Only Want to Get Married Once, the value similarities are the most important thing. And my husband and I, we have those similarities. Once we have those similarities, personality differences are actually the spice of the relationship. And that's where we learn how to be close to someone who's different from ourselves. How do we learn to accept and appreciate? And we also learn as a team, you know, if you start a business, you can hire one person, you're going to hire someone who can do exactly what you can do, or you're going to hire someone who can do what you can't do, or you don't even like to do, right? So that's the brilliance of a couple. Once we realize that and we pay attention to it and really live from that place, because we know this intellectually, but when we live it, then the marriage comes alive and it becomes easier and easier to just love. But it's something that we constantly have to come back to because there is such an immature part of ourselves that just wants someone to be exactly like us. We have to acknowledge that immature desire, the childish hope, and then also say, hey, I'm not a child anymore. I'm a mature adult and I'm going to create a mature loving marriage and nothing's going to stop me. Nothing. That kind of conviction, we've got it. Everything you've said is amazing and all these lessons that I feel like people are truly going to get and learn. But if there's one thing that you want people to end with this episode with you, one message, one learning, what would it be? You know, I think that the bottom line when it comes to us as human beings, we have to know that we need love. We're not trained in it. We need to get the training and we can do it. We can really, really make this happen. That is my message. That This is scientifically proven. The cutting edge brain research shows that the human brain is designed for connection and love. We can quote all of the research of Dr. Dan Siegel and Brene Brown stuff and all of it coming in and saying the same thing, that we're hardwired for love. We're hardwired for connection. But the problem is we're not trained in how to do this. So just like we go to courses and we get trained for whatever we want, we have to take love very, very seriously, especially those of you listening who, like me, did not grow up seeing a loving marriage. 
So if we didn't grow up seeing it, then we've got to figure out how to make this happen. We need to find role models. And again, movies are not role models. Sometimes there's a movie that you can learn something from, you know, like, isn't it romantic? There's some good things in that movie. The best part of that movie is the beginning. And she's sitting there as a girl, she's watching this romance, right? And her mother says, ah, that's not going to be us. We're never going to have that. Her mother plants a false belief. It's brilliantly done. You see the false belief go right into this girl's head and she grows up living out. That's not for us. That's never going to be. We all walk around with false beliefs about what love is and how we might not be deserving or it's not real or it's not really possible. It hurts. Love hurts. We all have false beliefs that we've absorbed either from our parents or from society or we've been burned and that's it. I'm not going to open my heart again. We need to heal and no one can heal us but ourselves. And if we need to speak to a therapist or a coach or read another book, whatever it is. When I meet people who are in the 60s years old, 70 years old, 80 years old, looking back at their lives and they say, I wish I experienced love. I wish I'd figured it out. And my heart breaks. And I want to say to anyone listening who's 20 years old, 30 years old, and 40 years old, do it now. It's not too late, by the way, for 60 or 70. And there's people who sometimes find love for the first time when they're 80. But the younger we are, the easier it is to work with our brain. Thank you so much, Hannah, for taking the time to do this, for all of your thoughts. I am so excited to share this with everyone. My outro that I do for my podcast is until next time. So I ask my guests to do it for me and I do a little cute song afterwards. So if you don't mind doing the honors and saying until next time. Just say those three words? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you got it. <laughs> until next time. <laughs>